0: Welcome back everyone. You've probably heard that it's very hard to beat the S&P 500 and that you're better off investing in a low-cost index fund that tracks the S&P rather than trying to pick your own stocks. This saying holds true for most investors and professional fund managers. Today I want to tell you one of the reasons why beating the S&P is so difficult and how this is both bad and good news for individual investors. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the S&P 500 index, but in case you're not, here's a really fast explanation. The S&P 500 index is a market capitalization weighted index of 500 large-cap publicly traded companies in the United States. The index is meant to be a gauge of the entire US equity market, and it is one of the most popular benchmarks used by investors. Today the index actually has 503 components, which is a bit odd since its name clearly states that it's meant to represent 500 companies. The reason the index has 503 components is because three of the included companies have two share classes listed. Historically, the index has grown at a rate of 9-10% annually when measured over longer periods of time. These long-term returns are oftentimes used to define what type of growth an investor can expect from the overall stock market. While you can invest directly in the S&P 500, you can invest in one of the many low-cost index funds that tracks the S&P. The low-cost, simple and passive approach of tracking the S&P 500 index, coupled with the very difficult to beat long-term performance, makes it one of the smartest and easiest investment paths for the average investor. Okay, now that we know a little bit about the S&P 500, let's talk about why it's so very hard to beat it. The one measure I wanna focus on today is called skewness. Skewness is defined as the measurement of distortion of symmetrical distribution, or in other words, it is the asymmetry in a data set. Let's break this down a bit, in case it's been a while since your last math class. Let's say we are analyzing a data set. For example, the results of a test exam, and we have the perfect blend of smart kids, average kids and not so smart kids and the outcomes of the exam are evenly distributed. This means that we have some high scores, some average scores, and some poor scores. If we were to look at these results on a graph, they would form a perfect bell curve, with the mean and median being right in the middle. The mean is the average test result, and the median is the exact midpoint of the results, meaning that an equal number of scores are both above and below the median. When looking at this bell curve graph, the area to the right of the mean and median is identical to the area to the left. It's perfectly symmetrical, a perfect bell curve. If the test results were not perfectly distributed, meaning there are more high scores or more low scores, our chart would have some skewness. This means that the area to the left and right of the mean and median would not look symmetrical, and most importantly, the mean and the median itself would be two unique values. We can have positive skewness, where the left side of the graph has more data points than the right, or negative skewness, which is the inverse, or the right side of the graph having more data points than the left. I apologize for the math lesson here but it will help you make sense of the stock return chart when we get there. I found a study that measured the skewness of all the stocks in the S&P 500 during the 20-year period and December 31st, 2019. There were a total of 1,012 stocks that were part of the S&P 500 during this 20-year period, and all of them had different returns. If you had to take a guess as to what type of skewness these returns presented, what would it be? Do you think they were symmetrical, positively skewed, or negatively skewed? If you guessed positively skewed, you'd be correct. But positively skewed is not all that positive for investors, as I'll explain in a second. During this 20-year period, the mean, or the average return, of the S&P 500 was a cumulative 239%. This equates to roughly a 6.29% annualized rate of return, which is lower than the average long-term return of the S&P 500. But keep in mind that the dot-com bubble popped in 1999 at the start of this 20-year test period, and we can't forget that it also includes the financial crisis of 2008. Since the individual returns are positively skewed, we know that the mean return will be different than the median return. And they are. The median return was a cumulative 52%, or about 2.12% annualized, much worse than the mean return. The fact that the mean return is higher than the median return is the important part here. While every one of these 1012 stocks had a 50% chance of being above or below the median, the odds of a given stock being above or below the mean were not 50%. The odds of a given stock being above the mean in this dataset was 26%, which means that 74% of these 1012 stocks were below average. And this basically means that if you are selecting individual stocks and you're trying to beat the S&P 500, the odds are stacked against you since more stocks underperform the average S&P return and only a handful end up driving the return. Before we go further, let me explain why the returns were positively skewed. The skew occurred because the worst possible return a stock can have is capped at minus 100%. It's physically impossible for a stock to lose more than all of its value. While the potential positive return does not have a cap, a stock can double, triple, or go up a thousand percent. Because of this bottom cap and no top cap, it's virtually impossible to have a symmetrical distribution when analyzing individual stock returns. If you were to randomly select any 5 out of these 1012 stocks. Statistically, only one would have generated a return better than the S&P 500, and the other four are more likely than not to be underperformers. I know most investors don't randomly select their stocks, so these odds are not necessarily representative of actual outcomes. But nevertheless, I think it's useful to know that statistically, the odds are heavily stacked against you. That is the bad news, and the easiest way to avoid underperforming the S&P 500 is to simply invest in the low-cost index fund that tracks the S&P and enjoy the average performance it has historically delivered. The good news is that if you're a skilled stock picker, you should be able to greatly outperform the S&P 500. If you can avoid below-average performing stocks and narrow in on a few high-performing ones, you can beat the market handsomely. This is very difficult to do, but not impossible, as countless legendary investors have proven in the past. There are ways of identifying high-quality companies that continue to deliver market-beating returns year after year. I've talked about a few of them in past episodes, and I continue to share insightful information as I find more correlations in historical data. I think most average investors think that they are good stock pickers, and it's usually quite easy to play Monday morning quarterback. You can look back at history and tell yourself, I knew Apple was a great investment, or that it was obvious to see that Netflix was going to be a winner. But let me ask you, did you invest in Apple or Netflix? And if so, did you hold that position for a long time, through the ups and downs? If you did, congrats to you on holding two solid winners. Let's take a look at the 10 best companies from this 20-year study of 1,012 S&P participants. I think you'll be surprised by a few of the winners. I know I was. The best S&P stock you could have owned between 1999 and 2019 was none other than Apple, with a cumulative return of 9,092%. In second place, we have UnitedHealth Group, with a smashing return of 5,073%. Third place goes to another healthcare stock, Humana, with a 4,740% return. In fourth place, we have Sherwin-Williams, with a return of 3,800%. Rounding out the top 5 is another tech giant, Amazon, with a return of 3,785%. Rolling into 6th place we have AutoZone, with a return of 3,587%. In 7th place we have Aetna, with a return of 3,462%. Bull Corporation finishes 8th overall, with a return of 3,077%. The Thrift Superstore, TJX Companies, locks in 9th place, with a return of 2,901%. And last but not least we have Lockheed Martin with a return of 2821%. You may have noticed that Netflix, or Google, or Facebook, not even Microsoft topped the list. My initial expectation was to see more technology stocks dominate this list, but that wasn't the case. We have some average boring companies in unsexy industries that proved to be the quiet winners of these two decades. I was actually pleasantly surprised that the top 10 stocks spanned a handful of unique sectors. What do you think the odds are you could have chosen these 10 companies out of 1,000 between 1999 and 2019? I think those odds are rather low. Maybe you could have picked a few, but would you have held these positions for more than a few years? Today it's easy to say that you would have, but is that something you're actually practicing with your existing holdings? Are you holding on to both your winners and losers? Everything looks much better and much nicer in hindsight, but following simple rules of long-term investing in the moment is tough. Let's take Amazon for example, the 5th best stock of the first 20 years of the 2000s. During this 20-year period, the stock had one extreme crash where it fell by more than 90%. Would you have hung on during this ride to the bottom? All the while watching other stocks fall less or perhaps even attain positive returns. The 90% drop during the tech bubble was the worst one for Amazon during this test window. But it had 5 more drops of 25% or more during these 20 years, oftentimes falling more than the S&P 500. We can look at all of the large tech companies and find that they have fallen by more than 50% at one time or another. Most experience these drops multiple times. Today we can say that the FANG stocks were great investments of the last few decades, delivering phenomenal returns, but everything looks better in hindsight. Look, the safest investing strategy is to stick with the S&P 500 and get rich slowly. If you want to do a little bit better than average, then take a flyer on a handful of stocks you strongly believe are higher quality than the rest. You can concentrate on sectors or areas of the market where you have the most knowledge to help give you an edge.